so far away. <laughs> Can you just come a little closer? <laughs> it's so much easier for my back. When I was young, younger, I would lock myself in the toilet at my home, in my home, and, um, and I could never quite figure out what I was doing um, until I was in an interview with one of you who mentioned that you liked to go out and, uh, when you were a kid and look at the moon. And I realized without knowing what I wanted, it was something to do with myself. And it was something to do with carving out some kind of quiet space to feel myself or to feel my life in some way. And um, I know that each one of us in some way or another, did something like that. You know, in my house, the I shared a bedroom with my sister, and it was a small house, and the only room I could be alone and carve out some kind of quiet time was the toilet, and it was tiny. You know, and, and people would kind of bang on the door, and they would think I was weird, you know, because I spent so much time in the toilet. And you know, the funny thing is that sometimes um, when I'm going off to visit a group and I'm about to give a Dharma talk, I go into the toilet first. <laughs> Because it has this sort of resonant feel of, oh, here is a space where I can feel myself free of, you know, all the social energies. I really want to begin this talk by honoring that part of each one of us who, in our own unique ways, have found in our world, in however our homes were and however our families were, who somehow found some place where we didn't have the words of, oh, I'm searching for the meaning of my life or the truth of my life. But there was some of that movement and impetus in, inside of our hearts that tried to find very creatively ways to come into a self-reflective understanding. Alongside of that, and I'll talk, more, I'll talk more about it later, I was really lost as a teenager in that search for finding that something. And at some point, I, I ran away from home and I lived on the streets in... Um, 
was it? Some one small town in Devon. This is in England. And, you know, it actually wasn't that comfortable. <laughs> and being an aversive person, I can't say I really enjoyed it. Um, but I, I lived on the streets and I begged. And, and I say that because it was also an expression in some way of the search for truth, for meaning, for understanding about how to hold my life. And this is a prelude to the deep gratitude that I feel for coming to the Dharma. The Buddha said when he was by the um, bank of the river Ganges to some of the community of practitioners that were um, with him, he he picked up some sand and he said, you know, um, how much sand practitioners is there on this bank, lying on this bank of the river Ganges? And whoever it was said, well, a, a lot, you know, really a kind of uncountable amount of grains of sand along the river Ganges. And he looked at the um, the piece of the sort of tiny little bit of sand on his thumbnail, and he said, this is like the, um, the number of sentient beings out of all the sentient beings who, who are represented in the grains of sand by the river Ganges that come to the Dharma. So just that amount on his thumbnail. And when we think of all of life, you know, the worms and the slugs and the birds and all the beings. And then we think about us in this room. It, it, that, it sort of resonates with that simile of the few grains of sand on his thumbnail. And um, so at the beginning of the Stama talk and kind of coming to the end of our retreat, not quite, but moving in that direction. I acknowledge with you all the deep gratitude I feel for finding a language and a practice that has answered the yearning of sitting in the toilet and of living on the streets. <laughs> um, it's, it has... It, 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 I think I would have been dead if I hadn't come to the Dharma. I think I would have. I think I would have lost my way. And so it really does feel like um, a raft that I found on this. That's another simile the Buddha gives of crossing the river and that there's a raft and the raft is the teachings. And I, I found this raft. And... Um, so having said that, one of my dear friends and colleagues is Eric Kolbig, who I talked with for many, many years before he moved into semi-retirement. And he started every Dharma talk by saying, whatever I say, don't take as the truth. But as the Buddha said, see for yourself whether it resonates and only take 
what resonates for you. Only take for the truth what you have explored for yourself and seen for yourself. And so all our offerings really are just that. They're just offerings. And I say that again um, because it's so easy to hear Dharma talks. And I experience this a lot actually in various three-month retreats. And to say, you know, I am nowhere near what they're talking about, you know, when they're talking about great concentration states or this and that. And this dharma can't be for me, you know, and I go through huge doubts about it. And really it was because no one said this or said it often enough at the beginning of the talk, which is take what's helpful and know that that part of you that sat in the toilet or did whatever you did is the most important part to nourish and that there is many and Gina and I talked about it many there are many 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 ways to find the technology and the practice that will actually support our unfolding so um The Buddha, actually, one of the reasons that I loved his teaching is that he named this longing that we have. There are great philosophers like Kant talked about meaning and Husserl talked about the phenomenology of being. And the Buddha was like really practical. He looked at that searching that we are um, find ourselves in and he said, what we really want is happiness. It's, you know, it, it isn't a huge treatise on the nature of being. It's that we want happiness. Wow. I mean, it's so simple and it's so radical to really allow ourselves. It's so beautiful. To really allow ourselves to say, I want to be happy. I have. Um, I am exploring the Diamond Heart training. You know, I can't see you back there. I just realised. Can um, can you sh- like someone shift a tiny bit? Oh yeah, thank you. That's great. That's great. That's great. Yeah, yeah. I just realised I couldn't see you. Um, the I'm in Diamond Heart training and. Uh, I've been going to these lectures and I've been hovering about, do I want to do it or don't I want to do it? And one of the things that was really interesting in the last session is um, this practice of desire what you want. Like take off the stops, the sort of cultural stops of thinking, you know, just the process of desiring is bad. Desire what you really want, really. And, And, you know... I mean, you know, I was partnering with someone and she's saying, oh, you know, yeah, I could have a car and a new house and, you know, those things like that. And we really just came to the same point of saying, but we really want to be happy. You know, beyond houses and cars and jobs and and everything else, we really want to be happy. And the Buddha named that. And it is really a powerful and radical stance to put ourselves in is to say, 
we really want to be happy and how beautiful that longing is. And then the Buddha said, and so what are the conditions, what are the conditions that actually obstruct this? You know, so in the Dharma talk last night, Jean talked about equanimity, and which is very close to happiness, um, the highest happiness. And she said that it's that capacity to hold everything, to hold all of our lives. And the Buddha said, so what's stopping us? What's stopping us from this place of being so at ease and allowing of everything that we find that we're living in peace and happiness? And he said, he went into his mind and he explored it and he said, oh, wow, I see what obstructs this happiness that we're longing for. And he said, what it is, is the energy of craving, desiring, and wanting. And it's other, the other expression of it, which is not wanting, aversion, hatred, anger, fear. <clears throat> and again, that is really radical. <clears throat> it's really amazing to see it so simply with out it going into, well, you're not happy because you're an untouchable, which is often what the naming of, of suffering was in, in India, or you're not happy because, and you can't be happy because you're a woman, or because of your class background. I mean, it's very amazing to actually name, to go into the mind and name it, and to say, wow, I want happiness, and this is what abstracts my coming to happiness. So, he's, so he, he first says, well, you know, let's look. Let's look at life. And so he says, let's look at the things that we are facing in our life. We face old age, sickness, and death. We acknowledge that, for example, in what happened in Haiti and the, the loss of life and the incredible... Um, the incredible devastation that happened with people's homes and the loss of their homes. The loss of family members. We see for ourselves what happens in our relationships and how they end. Some of us have talked about the great, the great pain in our relationships ending. And some of us have talked about the suffering of what happens when our bodies are in so much pain. Or the fact that we have lost jobs and that we can't find jobs. And the Buddha named all the circumstances that happen in our lives. So he wasn't, he wasn't ignoring the reality of our experience. He was saying, these are the things that happen. And um, it reminds, you know, as I was writing this Dharma talk, I thought about... I haven't actually thought about it for a while. I grew up in Johannesburg, and my parents were very active against the apartheid system. And when I was eight or nine, one night, there was uh, this, you know, knocking on the door. And I, I was the one that woke up, and I went to the door, being a naive eight-year-old, and opened it. And there were two policemen. 
and you know they seemed very big at that age they but they were now I understand they were young they were in their early 20s and you know one said you know is Mrs. Berman here and I I um, went to get my mom and she'd also heard the knocking and came to the front door in in her nightdress and the guy said Mrs. Berman you're under arrest my dad had already been arrested and the policeman came and you know my mom said, well, let me get dressed. And he wouldn't let her get dressed in her bedroom. I mean, there was nowhere to run. There were no doors out. The windows were barred because we were living in South Africa. So, um, but he insisted on being there. And so she dressed, and I, so I was there too. She dressed in front of him. And she said, just let me say goodbye to my kids. And he said, no, no, we have to go. And he took her. And it was like, wow, my parents were being taken away from me. And I didn't know when I would see them again. And that loss and devastation was so huge. I could just feel myself lock up, like something in my heart locked up. Those experiences that we have the Buddha acknowledges as part of life. He doesn't talk about this yearning for happiness as actually excluding these experiences. And he names them when he talks about our life in what's called the first noble truth. And I know that all of us in some way or another have experienced something like that, that we could say, yeah, here are the times in my life where it's been incredibly difficult. And so then he says, because I, I jumped, then he says, so, so you know what? And this is what's amazing. That experience and the other experiences that I had in, in negotiating my parents' absence and then in being forced to leave the country in a kind of underground kind of way and, and the many other experiences. Um, that, isn't, that isn't the origin of your suffering and your unhappiness. And it's like, wow, it isn't? Really? You know? Well, how come? because it seems so awful. And then just to acknowledge one other thing, because in these many uh, months that I've been living in bed, I spent four months in bed around my back, I got to watch a lot of videos on my computer. And one of them was Beyond Borders. I don't know if if any of you have seen it with uh, Jolie. Who married Brad Pitt. What's her name? Angelina Jolie and Clive Owen, and it, the movie is filmed in three countries, and one of them is um, is supposedly in Sudan, but it's in Namibia. And in the movie, they're going to this um, this camp with displaced people. Angelina Jolie, and she asks the driver to stop because there is this child, and we've seen pictures of of children like this who is so filled with malnutrition that really all you see is a scalp and these huge eye sockets. And the mother 
was wounded in the stomach and was lying with maggots in her stomach. And I just want to acknowledge that because when we do acknowledge what's going on either inside of us or outside of us, we think that it's those things that are the reason we feel despairing and weighted down. And we think it is these events in our lives, like what happened to me as a child, that are the, the kind of reason that I felt, and in some ways it's true, but at the core of it, that that's the reason I felt so, that I never felt safe in the world that wherever I went, I'd never felt safe. I didn't feel safe in any of my homes that I've lived in. I didn't feel safe out on the street. In fact, the only place where I felt kind of safe was either in a toilet or outside. Those were the only places where I felt safe. So so I'm just acknowledging my story as a reflection in some ways of your stories. And of the reality of the world we live in. And the Buddha said, I want to acknowledge this. I want to acknowledge the reality of this. And that it actually isn't these things that cause our suffering. That it is the movement of the mind in craving and aversion that cause suffering. And that is profoundly radical. So then he sort of goes further and he explicates it. And in the, in the um, so now I'm going to get, and now I'm going to get a little technical because it, I, this has been profoundly helpful for me in understanding why, what's going on. The Buddha said that We are a stream of moments of consciousness arising and passing and arising and passing. And it's happening so quickly. And and without awareness, it seems like we are one solid consciousness. So just like a movie, you know, if you slow a movie down, you get to see the frames. So mindfulness actually slows our movie down. So we begin to see, oh my God, I thought I was this one solid consciousness seeing and hearing and tasting and thinking and feeling. But actually, and Jean has been talking about that so beautifully, actually, oh my God, I'm not. There's actually this, just like our breath that comes and goes and comes and goes, our consciousness comes and goes and comes and goes. There isn't just one solid consciousness. Our consciousness is actually situated in our sense spaces. So it's not one solid consciousness seeing, it's seeing consciousness. And it's not one solid consciousness hearing, it's hearing consciousness. And tasting consciousness and... um, touch consciousness and um, um, emotional thinking consciousness, which is at the, uh, at the site of the mind. So, for example, what happens is that in the, I mean, it happens like in trillionths of seconds, there's thousands of consciousness 
that happen in a second. So it's happening very quickly. And so what's going on is in seeing you, in your, your, your bodies coming into my visual field, each one of you as I turn my head, there's something called contact. It's like your visual field triggers my visual consciousness. And so there's you as a visual object and my visual consciousness and contact, the contact of those two happening. And that happens so that seeing takes place. In that seeing, there is perception. And the Buddha says this happens in every moment of consciousness. There is the contact, there is the perception, and there is the feeling of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral that we've talked about. So that's happening in every moment of consciousness. There's volition. There's one-pointedness, enough focus that you're seeing so you know when you are really absorbed in painting or a hobby, you might not notice that someone's talking to you. So you have to have a certain amount of um, one-pointedness. And then life faculty, you have to be alive, and some very basic attention. That's happening in every moment of consciousness. When there is craving, wanting, desiring, or aversion, there is always, in that moment of consciousness, delusion, shamelessness, fearlessness of wrong, we've actually talked about that, and restlessness. So what is important, what is important about saying this is that when there is craving or wanting or not wanting, there is always delusion or wrong view. <clears throat> delusion has as its characteristic covering up the truth. It covers up what actually is happening. Shamelessness is that capacity because it's covered up, of not having a sense of morality or ethical behavior. Fearlessness is sort of very close to it, fearlessness of doing wrong. There's no inner sense of, oh, I shouldn't do this. And restlessness, because in this is fascinating, I just love it. Restlessness because the mind is is. Just like the cork floating on the water, it can't sink in to really see the experience. So the mind is restless in terms of floating on the surface of the water. So that it's, it's like the, the, um, the waves are troubled, you know, the, it's the sort of turbulence in the mind. All those go together every time there is wanting or not wanting. The importance of naming this is because when we are in wanting or not wanting, we are never seeing the truth. And that is radical. To, it's radical to acknowledge that and name that. So just sort of to go, to, some, to go back to my parents being arrested and the soldier. You know, in seeing my mom, because his perception was already distorted with the understanding that people who were fighting apartheid were terrorists, they called my parents terrorists, because 
He saw my mother as a terrorist. He didn't see her as a human being, as someone who deserved dignity, nor did he see us that way. In the same way that soldiers in Germany, you know, who were part of the extermination of the Jews, it was that same thing of when the perception is covered up in ignorance, so you're not seeing something clearly, then you do wrong easily because that's the nature of dignity and heart and the reality of a situation, which is we all deserve dignity, being covered up. It's it's so beautiful because it's not about being a bad person. It is really scientific in that in that moment that's what's happening in consciousness. So so the this distortion of reality that allows you to move in aversion or judgment or fear to do actions which are then unskillful and create the create suffering. I, I'm absolutely sure suffering for us in the, I mean deeply a deep discomfort for us and I'm sure that's that soldier because he was in ignorance and delusion and um, was was in suffering around it but he didn't know it at that time so clearly so another example a little more prosaic that maybe we all have experienced is that I I shop at Whole Foods, although actually I've been trying to boycott it because some of the community say that they have really bad um, personnel policies and that they don't support unionization of their workers, so I should boycott them. So anyway, but this is the story of I love jam on my toast in the morning. Every morning for my breakfast, I have toast and jam and a boiled egg. So... I go to the jam shelves, and there, at Whole Foods at least anyway, and Berkeley Bowl and other places too, are this array of amazing jams. And my eyes go to the top shelf where there are the fancy jams, you know, gooseberry jam with lavender or whatever, you know, <laughs> marmalade with contro, or, you know. And, um, and I watch my wanting and longing. And then I'm, you know, I'm practicing renunciation and I'm like, Arena, that's $8. That is miles too much money for you to buy, to spend on some jam. And I practice renunciation and I buy the, you know, $3 jam. And I've watched myself do this for a long time. I actually watched myself do it for about 12 months. And then my mom sent me a birthday present. And often I uh, money because she's in South Africa, so she sends me a check. So, um, so I usually spend my birthday money on food, and so I went and I buy my favorite food, which is smoked salmon and cream cheese and crackers and avocado, and then I go to the jam shelves. <laughs> and there is that gooseberry jam, you know. And I, I have, I really looked at that jam a long time, and I can just feel my mouth watering, you know, at the thought of tasting this jam. And I buy it, and I've got all my lovely food, and I take it home, and you know, prepare it, and I get my favorite Acmac cracker and put the butter and the jam on before I even get to the smoked salmon because you know I love sweets. (laughs) (laughs) 
and I taste it, and it is delicious. It is. It's, it is truly delicious, and so I have some more. And I have some more. And what I get is that actually, even though it's delicious, it's never as delicious as my wanting. And you know, that is heartbreaking. Because I wanted it so much. (laughs) And that's what the Buddha acknowledges. He acknowledges that there is nothing that will meet our wanting. It might temporarily, but it can't permanently. I mean, just because if you eat the whole bottle of jam, you're going to be sick. And then it's not pleasant anymore, you know? And if you just eat a few crackers, then it's just five minutes, and then what, you know? I mean, it's like, it's, it is, it is, it's kind, I, I mean, I think it's very radical. I think it's huge to really acknowledge that there is nothing in life that will meet our wanting. There isn't. And that's what the Buddha is saying. And he's saying that we keep getting um, uh, misguided. And that isn't the right word. You know how um, corralled, like a sheepdog does that with sheep, right? We keep getting corralled by um, the the culture and and our lack of understanding into thinking that that this wanting is the real longing that put us in the toilet or under the moon, that those are the same things. And the Buddha says they're not, that they're actually different things. And that is radical to name, you know, so that the wanting isn't the right longing to listen to. And so we get trapped in confusing the wanting with our longing and thinking that the material things we see will satisfy that deep longing that we have felt in our lives. And um, the, the thing about ignorance and delusion is that because it's in the mind state, it stops us seeing that distinction, which is why, and this is no blame, which is why each one of us, in one way or another, has, become, has been addicted to something because we have tried to meet our wanting. Not seeing clearly, because delusion masks the reality, that it isn't the wanting that's going to meet the longing. So, what, so that's what the Buddha is naming. And, um, and the same is true around the aversion, the not wanting. The same is, the, the, the same is true. So, <clears throat> you know, a small example is that I do actually love movies. I love movies. I love going to them. And being the aversive type, the aversive personality type, um, after I see them, I love to criticize them. <laughs> And you know, I, 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 I drive everyone I go to see a movie with crazy because I'm like, I just relish it. And you, someone once said to me, you know, Reno, it's just a movie. 
you know, you don't have to get into it so much. And I realized that there's, again, there was some longing in my criticism to find a truth. You know, but I, and I thought I was doing it by criticizing it. But it doesn't matter how much you criticize something or how much you are in aversion to it, you are not going to meet your longing. So that's what the Buddha named in the second noble truth. So radical. And then he said that actually there is the possibility of that longing being met. There is, and that it, that possibility is true for each one of us. And I want to name that, that that possibility of the longing being met, of, of the mind opening free of the dynamic of wanting and not wanting, happens in different ways for each one of us. So I want to talk about Jan, Freedom of Fear, what was her name, Jean? Jan, she wrote a book, Frazier, Jan Frazier, Freedom of Fear. Her mind opened very profoundly, kind of like Eckhart Tolle. She was like, she, she, she was like many of us, a nervous, anxious type. And she had gone to the hospital and they had um, looked at her mammogram and were calling her back. And she was totally freaked out. She was lying in bed, totally freaked out, a nervous wreck. And she saw her anxiety. And in that moment of seeing her anxiety, she wished, she just said, may my anxiety come to an end. And there was something about that wish where that opened her mind up profoundly and it stayed open. Open to hold absolutely everything. In, in that, you know, in the way what we love to go outside because when we're it's outside, there isn't one thing controlling nature. There is the tree in its expression and there is the hill and the stones and the grass and the wind and the sun and the clouds. There's not one locus point and because of that it's deeply freeing. And so um, when, I, I, when I was um, going to retreats early on in my practice, I sat a retreat with Goenka and it was kind of hellish, actually. You know, it, I, I, I was just like, oh my God, my mind is like a sewer. It just was so full of greed and hatred and delusion and judgment and fear and shame. And I was like, you know, I was actually felt kind of despairing. <clears throat> and I thought, well, I don't think this dharma is for me. <clears throat> um, I'm, going to give you, I'm going to give this teacher, Ruth Dennison, a chance, you know, and I went to her retreat center, and her retreat center is totally opposite from Goenka. You know, everything was very organized with Goenka. You had to sit in certain places, and you had to come to an interview, and you were asked a question in a certain way, and you answered. I mean, it was very regimented, and you had some sittings where you couldn't move at all, and there were an hour, and it was, you know, and the everything was very much in its place, and 
with Ruth's retreat, it was totally different. She didn't have a sewage system in place because she wanted to take all the water, her centers in the desert, and actually for us to water the plants. So we were constantly carrying these buckets of, you know, of kitchen water and bathroom water out into the desert, and then the compost toilets didn't smell that good. And um, so, you know, it was like a whole different scene. And I remember sitting in the meditation hall, and she took her dog everywhere with her. And she, she, she loved her dog, and she loved her dog because it's a whole other story and what's the time. <laughs> I don't really have time to talk about it, but another time. She, so she loved her dog, and she took her dog everywhere, even into the meditation hall. So we're in the middle of a sitting, right? And you hear, shh, hunt, shh, hunt, which is German for dog, shh. Well, of course, her shushing is making much more noise than the dog. And the screen door opens, and you hear the feet of the dog coming in across the floor. And it's just, like, so outrageous in a way and so ordinary that my mind just opened. And in the opening, there is no locus. There is no I. It is just that everything has its place. And so the Zen tradition talks about it as suchness. There is the suchness of, oh, this is the dog, this is Ruth, this is the meditation hall. One thing isn't more weighted than another. Everything is kind of in its place. Even, you know, even if there's pain, there is the pain in its place. Everything is like, has its own home. So um, this is, um, this book is so heavy, my God. It's hard on the back. So this is um, the, um, uh, the, some of the definitions of uh, nirvana. This truly is the most peaceful and refined, that is to say, the stilling of all formations, the forsaking of all acquisition and every substratum of rebirth, the fading away of craving, cessation, nirvana. Uh, this, yeah. Before my enlightenment, while I was still only an unenlightened bodhisattva, being myself subject to birth, aging, ailment, sorrow, I sought after what was also subject to these things. Then I thought, why being myself, subject to birth, aging, death, sorrow, do I seek after what is also subject to these things? Suppose being myself subject to these things, seeing danger in them, I sought after the unborn, the unaging, the unailing, the deathless, the sorrowless, the undefiled, the supreme release from bondage. That is, the supreme release from wanting or not wanting. That peace, nirvana, which is called the extinguishment of wanting and not wanting. And I'm telling you, you these stories just because sometimes we have an idea that it's very far away. Or sometimes we think we have to have like great concentration that's true for some people, but it isn't true for everyone. 
What is true is that each of us have this possibility for opening. And the only condition that has to be present for this opening that gives us a taste of how it is to live without that sense of being um, the core central uh, actor on the stage of life or actress on the stage of life is to be present. That is the core thing, is to be present. Because we don't know when, just like Jan Willis, also Francis, um, Francis of Assisi who heard a bird call while walking, we don't know when the mind will open. We do know the law that it can't open unless we're present. So that's what the Buddha spoke to when he said, this opening into an understanding of life without confusion, without the covering of delusion and wrong view, without the energies of owning and grasping and identifying, or, or the opposite of that, this possibility rests for each of us. And if there's one thing that we want to communicate to you, it is to hold this understanding as preciously as you hold your life. Because it is the orientation that gives us meaning and that directs our longing into what is most healing and what is most liberating. It is this understanding that each one of us can open in this way to the highest peace. And when we have a taste of this, and sometimes it's just a taste of like a few seconds, you know, or a few minutes, then we are unshaken in our faith of that possibility. Even if we never have that, that kind of opening again, we are clear on what our direction is. You know, and the direction is to support the conditions for this to happen again. For, the, for greed and hatred to begin to fall away, for craving and aversion to begin to dissolve. So that in acknowledging that then, you know, and it's just very exquisite because, it, again, I just want to say this is not about a good person or a bad person or being successful or not being successful. It is really about training our minds to be present so that we can see what the obstacles are to the highest peace. And we are in training according to what our minds are like and what our stories have been like. So then, just to say, you know, how we do our work is either up front or afterwards. You know, so for example, that opening happened earlier on in my practice, and that opening brought up all the abuse memories in my family that I had repressed. And so then I, I, I worked for, I mean, not that, it, that it's uh, 100% healed, it isn't, but like just intensely for maybe 15 years of working with a mind that was in severe trauma and distress. So does that mean that we, you know, if there's an opening, suddenly all our work is done? No. It might 
It doesn't. It might mean that some of us do all that work up front and then the mind opens and touches places or it might mean that for whatever karmic reason the mind opens and then we do the work afterwards. We're all working. We're all working to heal the places that are contracted in um, uh, um, and and um, and are caught in stories that um, bind our energies and don't allow for the opening. So that is to say that when we look at what holds aversion and uh, craving in place, it is the stories that we create around ourselves and the stories that um, we hold in place as though the stories and the thoughts that we have about ourselves are true. Those stories, any story that we have about ourselves is based in delusion because we are not a story. And that means we're not seeing something correctly. Whether that story is I'm not good enough about something or I'm really the opposite, I'm entitled. So for example, I watch myself because of this part of my class backgrounds. Going into restaurants sometimes you know, especially restaurants that, you know, charge more money, you know, the restaurants that charge $25 on their menus. And, and I'm like, I expect good service. That's a story. I deserve good service and I expect it. it, it it's, it's just this kind of entitlement. That's a story that I carry around, you know, and I've watched myself go through a fair amount of suffering around it. And it's taken a long time to actually see it because then I get really uppity and I get critical and, you know, and the, whoever's serving us feels it and it's just bad news all around. You know, but it's fascinating. It's fascinating that I've carried that for so many years. I'm 60. <laughs> I'm about to turn 60 at the end of this month. So, and then we have stories of just the opposite, you know, of like somehow um, 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 you know that i'm I'm not I was um hiking with a friend of mine, and this year as this was a number of years ago, you know, and she and this and she had. Uh, heavy, we had heavy backpacks, and she's like, I can't do this. I just can't do it, you know. She had that story, and, you know, and she put her backpack down on the ground and started crying, and, I mean, I can relate. I've, I've done the same. I've also done the same thing on some 100-mile hike trails that I did at, at the, on the Appalachian Mountain Trail. It's that feeling of, I can't do it. But actually, she did do it, and I did do it. You know, it's just the stories that constrict us that um, hold the aversion and the desire or the fear or the shame or the jealousy or the envy in place. When we all, when we see we are in a story, the Buddha says, please investigate it because all the stories we carry are not a real reflection of who we are. We are much more than our stories. And when I talked earlier on in the retreat about drop all thinking, the reason 
Upandita says drop all thinking is because most of our thinking is in the form of stories and that our stories are not true. So, um, so then um, when we acknowledge that the, the, um, the, um, we enter into the, the last of the noble truths, so the noble truth of life is challenging, the noble truth of what is the cause of, of our suffering, the noble truth of the ending of suffering, and then the noble truth of what, how do we live in order to create the conditions to live more and more in this real freedom and dignity of being. And that's called the fourth noble truth. And um, so, (laughs) just to name it for those of you who are new for the first time, the fourth noble truth is wise understanding, and that's understanding what causes suffering and the end of suffering. And it's also understanding, and I want to just take these last five minutes or so and talk about karma. It's also understanding karma. I'll run through the other noble truths and come back to karma. The next, the next really important key is wise intention. If we acknowledge this longing and we take it to be as precious as it really is, then what are our intentions in our life to support it? So the Buddha asks us that. And then he says, there, are, there is a way of living that most supports realizing this longing, and that is ethical living. And he describes it as right action, right speech, and right livelihood. And then he says, using the base of this ethics we begin to train our minds to see clearly where there's suffering and where it's the end of suffering. And there are three tools in particular that Jean talked about this morning that help us see. So it's like having the microscope. There's, there's um, this lens that helps us see more clearly what's happening. That's mindfulness, effort, and concentration. There's three things in particular. So, to cycle around again, because it's, it's those practices in those areas that create the support to meet our longing. The law of karma for me has given me more faith than anything else really in this practice. And that is the understanding that every effort makes a difference. Just as in the law of the universe, when you put a kettle on the stove, the water boils, or if you strike a match, there's a flame and it lights, it lights the candle here. There, is, there are laws in the physical universe. It would be weird if there weren't laws, given that we're physical beings, to do with our own mind and body. There are And the most important law, the Buddha says, is the law of karma, which is that every intention that is skillful will bring skillful results that will meet our longing. And every intention that is unskillful will take us further away, just very simply. So 
in a way we could talk about the Dharma, and Jean mentioned this last night as well, as the cultivation of what is skillful and the abandonment or the renunciation of what is unskillful. The cultivation of the beautiful qualities of mind, mindfulness, effort, concentration, loving kindness, joy, generosity, patience, and the abandonment of greed, hatred, and delusion. That is the practice that meets that longing and creates the condition for the longing to come to fruition. I was passionate, filled with longing. I searched far and wide. But the day that the truthful one found me, I was at home. I was present. Okay, let's see if I have one more poem to read here. This is After Goat. In the mountain, stillness. In the treetops, not a breath of wind. The birds are silent in the woods. Just wait. Soon enough, you will be quiet too. So let's sit together. In the mountain stillness, in the treetops, not a breath of wind. The birds are silent in the woods. Just wait. Soon enough, you will be quiet too. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.